Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the second Sunday in Advent. And today we're looking at the gospel reading for this Sunday from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, along with a look at the Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. The theme of Advent, of course, is that Jesus is coming. And as we talked about last week, that's a a, a threefold visitation, if you will. Jesus has come in the flesh to save us. Jesus is coming again in glory on the last day to judge the living and the dead. And between then and then, now, Jesus comes to us in his means of grace to forgive our sins, and grant us life and salvation. In Matthew chapter 3, as we prepare for Christmas, we have John preparing the way for Jesus to begin his public ministry by his baptism. And so in Matthew chapter 3, we have John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, beginning with verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this chapter begins with, In those days... Let's talk about those days for just a second. It makes sense to us because this is the start of a new chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. But remember, when the Gospels were first written, they didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers. Those were added later on to help us find our way around the Bible. So if you're reading this without uh, without chapters and without verses... What you get in in chapter 2 is Jesus is born, the wise men seek for him, the magi look for him, Herod finds out, tries to kill Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus flee to Egypt, spend a little time there, and then they return to Nazareth in Galilee. That's where 2 ends, and then in those days, John the Baptist is preaching, which sounds at first to us as if John the Baptist preaches for about 30 years before Jesus arrives on the scene. But John is only born six months before Jesus is. So what, what is happening here is not that John is, is, is preaching for that long of a time. Rather, what Matthew is saying is that now that Jesus has come, it's a brand new day. It's a brand new era. And from the time Jesus is born to the time that he is baptized by John in the Jordan to the time that he dies and rises again, that's 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 all those days, because this is this is God in action. This is the Messiah at work to save. And so so those days include Jesus entire um, uh, life from his conception through his ascension, his work of salvation for us. So, um, John the Baptist and Jesus are both right around 30 years old at this time. 
And John declares to the crowds, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this repent is not so much turn from sin and be forgiven. That's part of it. But it's bigger than that. This is a message for all to repent from unbelief, to be turned from not believing in the Messiah to believing in the Messiah. In other words, John is saying to to the people, you've been led astray on the ways of salvation. The Messiah is almost here. So turn from the wrong way of believing and believe in the one who is about to come. And you'll note that John is preaching in the wilderness. And that's kind of significant too, because the wilderness plays a big part in the Old Testament as Israel wanders through the wilderness until they reach the promised land. And then it's, it's, it's Joshua, the Old Testament version of the name Jesus, who, who leads the people out of the wilderness into the promised land. Here's John preaching to the people of, of, of Judea. He's saying, repent, trust in the Messiah who is about to come, come out of the wilderness, be God's people, be in the promised land again by, by following the Messiah who is, who is just about here. Because John says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is the kingdom of heaven there? Because the king is there. In fact, we know from the Gospel of John that as as John preaches, Jesus spends at least a day in the crowds listening before he's baptized. Wherever Jesus the king is, he brings his kingdom with him. What that means is wherever the king is, he is actively working as king. He is reigning He is going about his king's work of saving. So when John says the kingdom of of heaven is at hand, it's because Jesus, the king of heaven, is at hand. The new creation is coming soon. The last day is nearer than it was before. So it's time to repent and believe in Jesus. That's John's message. And then Matthew notes that John is fulfilling prophecy. The prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then Matthew goes on to describe John the Baptist a little bit more. We read in in verse 4 of Matthew 3, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Why does it matter that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist? It's to tell us that he is the new Elijah. Back in 2 Kings chapter 1, the king is looking for the prophet Elijah and and some of his servants run into a man who uh, is wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. And it turns out that that man is, is in fact, the prophet Elijah. That's 2 Kings 1 verse 8. At the very end of the Old Testament, 
In the very last book, Malachi, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, Malachi prophesies uh, God saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Malachi said, Before the Messiah arrives, Elijah will come and prepare his way. And later on in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus says, just in case they haven't figured it out, that John the Baptist was the new Elijah who prepared the way of the Lord. So John wears those clothes just like Elijah wore as a, uh, as, as a, a hint to us that he is in fact the, the, the Elijah prophesied in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. Living in the wilderness, he eats wilderness food, locusts and wild honey. And people from Jerusalem and all Judea and all around the Jordan are going out to him. And they are baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, which is an interesting construct in English and in Greek, because they're confessing their sins as he is baptizing them. More on that when we get down to verse 11. But for now we read on. But when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John the Baptist tangles with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They will tangle with Jesus as well. They'll get him crucified, but he, he's still victorious anyway. But this is where the Pharisees and Sadducees appear in the Gospel of Matthew. We really don't know that much about either group. We do know this. The Pharisees are, are a class of laity. They're, they're not clergy, but they're, they're kind of really, really pious laymen who are concerned about the ritual purity of the Jews. Now, for instance, at the temple, everything has to be ritually and ceremonially pure, clean and cleansed, and, and it's kept pure and cleansed by, by the priest carefully keeping the rules. What the Pharisees have done is they've said, as, as uh, it's good to be so ritually pure and clean at the temple so should we be ritually pure and clean throughout our everyday lives. And so the Pharisees are very, very, very big on making and keeping and enforcing rules that people are, are ceremonially clean by, by not doing unclean things. They're super big on obeying the Sabbath, 
In fact, they tangle with Jesus several times as he heals on the Sabbath because um, they're trying to catch him breaking the Sabbath law by working. But their big thing is they, they, they want, they want um, their fellow Jews and, and themselves to be pure before God by keeping the rules. Um, I, 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 might, I might liken them to, say, Christian fundamentalists today who believe that the, the purpose of Christianity is to teach us to, to live godly lives by, by not drinking or smoking or, or dancing or things like that. They, uh, they very well might mean well, but they're focused on the law and their own man-made rules, and that focus takes them off of Christ. That's the Pharisees. They, they may mean well. They, they have popular support among the people. The people think that they're, for the most part, the Pharisees are, are, are good in what they're doing because they stand for, for morality and, and, and law and order. However, they're not going to trust, for the most part, in Jesus. There, there are exceptions. Nicodemus, for instance, is a Pharisee who believes in Jesus. But, uh, but for the most part, the Pharisees will, will reject Jesus. The Sadducees are a, a, a small class of men. They're aristocratic, so they're well-to-do. They're also priestly. So these are kind of wealthy aristocratic priests. And among them are the family of the high priest, which means Caiaphas and Annas are Sadducees. Now, it's thought also that the Sadducees are are more influenced by by the Greeks than the Pharisees are. That's somewhat debatable. However, what's pretty well established and verified by Scripture is that whatever else the Sadducees believe, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you have um, misled laymen and misled priests, both of whom, well, uh, the Pharisees believe you get to heaven by keeping the rules, and the Sadducees believe that you don't get to heaven because there is no resurrection of the dead. Both of those are wrong beliefs, false beliefs. And when they come to hear John the Baptist, he rebukes them. You brood of vipers, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Brood of vipers, children of snakes, that's that's a pretty strong denunciation. And John the Baptist declares they deserve that rebuke because... The Pharisee who says you're saved by, by keeping the rules is going to say you're not saved by trusting in Jesus. And so that Pharisee is doing the work of the devil by saying you're saved by works, not by grace. The Sadducee who denies the resurrection of the dead isn't going to see much use for Jesus, who declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. So he's going to lead people away from Jesus as well. In other words, the Pharisees and Sadducees are not just misled people. They are men with authority who are teaching actively against 
the gospel that Jesus is going to proclaim, the gospel that John the Baptist already is proclaiming. That's why he calls them brood of vipers or offspring of snakes. Now, to be called the offspring of snakes is insulting enough, given the reputation of snakes. It is interesting that in Genesis 3.15, when God first promised the Messiah would come to Adam and Eve, he said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring, her seed, and your offspring, your seed. And of course, in the garden, the devil is in the form of a serpent. So, some have suggested that when God spoke of the offspring of Satan, offspring of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, he was talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees specifically who would do battle with Jesus. Now, it's, it's, it's tempting. There's some stuff that militates against that. Um, the, sa- uh, the Satan, the devil, Satan, in the Old Testament is called a serpent and a dragon, He's never called a viper in the Old Testament, so that's a little bit of a leap there. Also, John the Baptist calls the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers, plural, not brood of viper, singular. Nevertheless, whether or not they are included in the um, offspring of Satan um, that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, they are certainly um, working um, to, to, they're working to, to do the work of the devil by leading people away, away from Christ. But there is hope for them. So John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that fruit, what does that repentance look like? He goes on to say in verse 9, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees appear to believe in something. um, The big big term, the the 50 cent term is covenantal gnomism. Covenantal gnomism. And that's the idea that they are God's chosen people because they are Abraham's children by birth. By, by genetics. They can trace their family tree back to Abraham because Abraham was chosen by God and his, his uh, what great-grandsons formed the 12 tribes of Israel. Therefore, they are God's people still because they're part of that people. And so therefore, they believe they're going to heaven because they're descended from Abraham and they're going to heaven unless they really mess up while they're trying to follow, follow the law of God. Even today, we, we, uh, we have Christians who say that, that the Israelis are still God's chosen people because of their, their genetic heritage, because they're descended from Abraham. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees were wrong, and and, and this idea of covenantal gnomism is wrong. Galatians 3 verse 7 tells us this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's actually Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. In other words, in terms of salvation, in terms of the gospel, children of Abraham are not those who share his genetics, who are descendants of Abraham. The children of Abraham, when it comes to the gospel, are those who share not the genetics of Abraham, but share the faith of Abraham. Whether Jew or Gentile, if they trust in Jesus, if they share the faith of Abraham who trusted in Jesus who was to come, that makes them children of Abraham, not their family tree. And this is what John adds when he says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Stones in the New Testament is often a code word for for Gentiles. So John the Baptist says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so you think you're Abraham's children because of your family tree? God will raise up children of Abraham out of stones, out of Gentiles, because they will trust in the same Jesus that Abraham trusted in so many years to go. John then says to them, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Right now, they're bearing fruit off of their belief that they're saved by their pretty good obedience and ritual purity. But if they trust themselves and their own works to get into heaven, they'll be condemned. They'll be like a tree cut down and thrown into the fire. So says John, now it's time to repent. Then we come to this final bit of our gospel reading, verses 11 and 12, where John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here we hear of of two different baptisms. First is the baptism of John. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. So John's baptism is, is about repentance. Either it's it's for those who have repented, or else the baptism causes repentance. We also know from Mark 1, 4 and Luke 3, verse 3, that John's baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. So, John the Baptist's baptism leaves people repentant and forgiven one way or another, but it is not the same thing as holy baptism that we have in church today, also known as Christian baptism. We know this because in, say, Acts 18 and 19, there we find people who are baptized in the name of John, but need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. 
So, so John the Baptist's baptism might deliver repentance and forgiveness, but it's still only pointing towards Christian baptism, holy baptism as we know it today. It's really quite significant, too, that John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. So even though John the Baptist is the new Elijah, even though he's prophesied by Mosiah, he can't hold a candle to Jesus. Jesus is far greater because he's the son of God. And, says John, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he does this, says John, when he clears his threshing floor and gathers his wheat into the barn and burns the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this baptism by Jesus is not Christian baptism or holy baptism either. This is the last day. There he pours out, uh, Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit on on some, um, gathering them into heaven. He pours out fire and judgment on, on those who do not believe, and so they are condemned. Now, because we are baptized with Christian baptism now, we know on the last day that we have... Um, We have the hope of a further gift of the Holy Spirit and deliverance into heaven on the last day. Um, So our baptism now prepares us for that baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire when Jesus returns again in glory. All right, a quick look then at Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 10. A neat little passage to pair with Matthew chapter 3 and John preparing the way. Verses 1 and 2 read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Isaiah declares the Messiah is coming, from the stump of Jesse, now Jesse was, was David's father. And so Isaiah is saying once again that, that the Messiah will be um, in David's line, a son of David. When shall he come forth? He'll come forth in, in those days of Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Where the Pharisees are not bearing fruit that befits repentance and they're about to be cut down, this, this, uh, this branch from the stump of Jesse will bear fruit and that's salvation for you and me. Um, verse 2, just beautiful, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So we have the Trinity at work here. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, Jesus the Son. And he's called the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. In other words, one spirit with seven attributes. These are gifts that the Holy Spirit delivers to his people. And this is the spirit who who, um, descends onto Jesus when he is baptized. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in this prophecy that, that, that the Messiah comes, 
And what shall the Messiah do? We read in verse 3, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now read that in contrast to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and all of sinful man. The Messiah delights in in the fear of the Lord, which means he wants to follow God's commandments. He judges with righteousness. He he judges without bias for for the wealthy or the powerful. He, uh, He decides with equity for the meek and the poor. And he punishes evil. He strikes the earth with the rod of his mouth. He destroys the wicked. So he is righteous and judges righteously. And he is faithful and he mercifully saves. This is what the king does when the kingdom of heaven draws near. What's the outcome? Starting at verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, when does that happen? When sin is gone. Verses 6 through 9 give us a, 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 a throwback image to the Garden of Eden before the fall. When there was no sin, there was no, no death, there was no harm, there was no bloodshed. And the Messiah comes as Isaiah to restore what was lost because of the fall into sin. So you have the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lies down with the young goat, the calf Um, And the lion and the fattened calf are together. Um, The curse of sin is gone. Lions eat straw instead of other animals or people. And so it's a beautiful beautiful announcement that, that God is made flesh to restore paradise. And another little connection to our gospel reading here is is that... um, where the Pharisees are a brood of vipers working against Jesus because Jesus conquers sin, death, and devil. Um, in Isaiah, we have the weaned child who is playing with adders and, and, and playing with cobras because the curse of sin is no more. And once again, who is, who is this Messiah? In verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So this Messiah, once again, is a descendant of Jesse and David. 
He is a signal for the peoples, which means he draws all nations to himself because he comes to save all nations that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. So as we get a bit further into Advent and we hear John the Baptist prepare the way, we remember that, that Jesus comes to bring peace he comes to, uh, to restore what was lost from sin. His kingdom is, is as near to us as his means of grace because that's where Jesus is for us. So as his people, we continually repent. We turn from our sin. We turn from trusting in our works. We turn from any self-righteousness. We confess all that. And we rejoice in Jesus Jesus, the King who has come to save us by his death and resurrection and who is coming again in glory. So that's a quick look at our Old Testament and Gospel readings for the second Sunday of Advent. God grant you every good gift in your further meditations. God grant you every blessing if you are teaching this to others. And until we speak again, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.